0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I'm Francesca Maxime, joined today with the Amazing um, and delightful, uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, MD, PhD, a child psychiatrist and neuroscientist, the principal of the Neurosequential Network, senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy, and adjunct professor of psychiatry at Northwestern. Um, he also wrote uh, *The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog* and um, another book um, on empathy. And his latest is *What Happened to You: Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing* with none other than none other than. Oprah Winfrey on the New York Times bestseller, uh, top of the list. Hi, Bruce. Welcome back to Rerooted. It's so good to see you.
1: Hi, Francesca. It's always wonderful to talk with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, It's it's really delightful, Um, you know, uh, as we were talking sort of leading up to this kind of getting into our uh, vibe and kind of feeling one another out for the day as as one does when one is regulating relating and then reasoning, you know, we'll get to all the good things that you talk about here, um, that, you know, when I say delight, that was a, a new word for me that I learned is like, you can have joy, you can be happy, but there's something about being delighted that sort of is a combination of surprise and, and wonder and, and sort of joyfulness and a lightness to it that I don't think we have enough of in this world. So I am truly delighted that you're here joining me in this conversation today.
1: Well, thank you very much. I feel very much the same way. (laughs) Well, uh, When I see you, I get a big smile on my face. I saw you on on my calendar. I'm like, oh, this will be fun. This will be fun. I'm going to have a good morning. (laughs)
0: Uh Good, 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 good. Well, I know that this has been a whirlwind for you, this What Happened to You um, book. I encourage everyone to to buy it, to read it, to take it in as you do, um, to take it in in parts and pieces if needed, meaning like read a little bit, reflect, kind of digest it as we go, uh, and that kind of thing. And I know you've known Oprah for uh, decades now and helped her with her school in Africa and the girls there and some of the challenges that they were facing and whatnot. But the first thing I maybe want to say about this is as a journalist, because I actually became a journalist because of Oprah. It was the same trajectory. Um, And my goal is to have a mindful talk show, which I'm kind of doing with this podcast. But for whatever it's worth, you want to put a bug in your ear, (laughs) I'm I'm available, But, um, but that the reason why I became a journalist at the time was because the question that I had always asked myself that I was never able to answer is, why do people do what they do? And so I became a journalist to answer that question. And in a way, you're, a- you're asking the same question in this, I feel, which is what happened to you. So talk to me a little bit about why we're moving from um, a framework around behavior to understanding the history.
1: Well, it's. It- For those of you who are listening who know much about the the trauma world, you you probably know that that term originated out of Sandy Bloom's clinical work group um, many, many years ago. And Sandy Bloom is a pioneer in our field um, and has done some wonderful work trying to help all of us better understand the systemic aspects of how um, trauma impacts the way organizations work. And and if you don't address that, it doesn't matter if you have really good individual clinical practice put in place in your clinic, you need to understand that people on the board and people that are your supervisors and people that are your clinical consultants need to have the same understanding and level of respect for you that you are attempting to have with your clients. So she's done some great work. Bottom line is they were having a, a, what we call like a clinical staffing, which is where you sit around and talk about a client and everybody puts their two cents in and one of the members of their team <clears throat> um, basically came out and said, you know, it's almost as if in our work, we've changed uh, the, the major question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And this was really an acknowledgement of and an awareness that they were moving to a more developmental perspective in their clinical work. They were recognizing that if a child is aggressive, impulsive, has trouble with relationships right now, that that came from somewhere. It just didn't pop up from nowhere. And This is something that is really sort of at the primary ethic of, I think, good trauma and developmentally informed work, that there's a recognition that all human behavior has antecedents. And if you don't understand the antecedents, you don't understand where this comes from, you'll always be making um, sometimes educated guesses, but a lot of times really bad guesses about where the behavior, where the emotional problems, where the struggles are coming from and um so that's kind of that you know the irony is <laughs> and i have to laugh about this because i've been talking to oprah for 30 years about this 30 <laughs> years long time and i think more than anything that this shows what a bad teacher i am <laughs> because it it wasn't until about 3 years ago when i mentioned that shift in question during a 60 minutes interview she said oh now i get it <laughs> like
0: Oprah, she had her aha We've been talking moment talking about
1: this for years, but that sort of simple reframing uh, helped her connect with a lot of the stuff I've been talking about for a long time, and that's why she wanted that to be the title of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, and it's been. So healing, and I know there are so many other podcasts and interviews and things that you've done in uh, terms of promoting the book, and so I don't want to dwell too much on the book per se, um, although I it's I highly encourage everyone to read it and buy it and share it and maybe join a book club about it or create one and um, look up the neurosequential model and the Child Trauma Academy certainly and um, find some of the trainings that you offer because I think you know from from my perspective as a somatic psychotherapist and a mindfulness student and 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 teacher um and someone who comes from uh, an interracial you know multi-ethnic you know background one of the things the last time we spoke last summer about was um as it was the summer of the uprising and it preceded the uh, the election here in the united states um, And things like that. There was just so much social uh, sort of turmoil, and 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 so much that had kind of come to a head. And that too has antecedents. And and I feel like all of this history, you know. it's connected to our individual and our collective nervous systems. And so I'd like to kind of continue to have the conversation both on a personal and individual level and also on sort of maybe this broader you know, spectrum level in terms of where are we at and how do we exist in space and time and, and, and as a collective. Because the one message that you say here loud and clear again and again is love and relationship is what's healing. And we live in a world, I think, sometimes where we're just um, reinforcing uh, separation.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I, what you mentioned earlier, and we, and we talked about this a little bit prior to starting the recording, is that the, the very same question or the very same developmental approach in clinical work is conceptually comparable to a, a real historical perspective and where a people are, right you know what's the heritage of these of the people you are working with of your of yourself, of your own family? And if you're not aware of that, you just kind of get swept up into the inertia of doing what you've always done. And what that means is that <clears throat> if 500 years ago, some structure like public education or education was started <clears throat> by um, white males and it was only given to white male uh, children who were wealthy and then little by little from that origin that that original concept of education that it was only modified with tiny little tweaks well we'll add a few other people and we'll add a, but they're male and they have to have some money. They have to own land. They they don't have to be really rich, but they have to own land. Excuse me. And then we'll add a few other people and a few other people. And if if every few hundred years, every few generations, we make these tiny little tweaks, you haven't really changed education. All all you've done is maintained the existing power structure and you've just redecorated it. You have the same house it's it's just got different furniture and so when people talk about systemic racism or they talk about systemic misogyny uh, you talk there's both of those exist in our current public education system and you know if you don't if you get so defensive that you don't see that clearly you'll end up um missing a tremendous opportunity to make meaningful change in those systems
0: mm.
1: right now i think the whole initiative the whole effort to change public education for example is just completely misguided because it's just tweaking the edges of that old house that has the same top dominance hierarchy the same structures the same process of not including the community in, in deciding what should be part of our curricula all kinds of stuff. It's just very um, much tied to the old models. And you can say the same thing about just about every other system we have in our society, they have their origins in uh, from something that had started, you know, hundreds of years ago, I mean, the university system is actually probably the best example. Mm. A, you know, white male dominated power hierarchy. And um, <clears throat> you know, you saw an example of it with uh, recently at University of North Carolina. Yeah. You know, um, I can go. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. But.
0: No, not at all. I mean, what I think what you're pointing to is, I think when people start to and and I mean we'll 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 go micro, macro, and mezzo. Um, we'll, you know, we'll sort of uh, the the clinical sort of personal nervous system regulation, brain science, neuroscience, limbic system, neurosynaptic, you know, firings and unlockings. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that. But then how does that affect the collective? And what kind of culture, to use what Resmaa Menicum talks a lot about, another somatic psychotherapist. And, uh... Talks about somatic abolitionism, you know, which I think is a great term. um, That uh, wrote a book called, I also encourage my listeners and viewers to watch, uh, called My Grandmother's Hands to Read. that, that there's really sort of a, a sense of how this impacts the, the collective. So what you're talking about, I think, is how do we transform culture? How do we begin to transform ourselves? I think I like to use the term from the inside out. How do we turn the eyes inside and be able to turn from the inside out? And how do we recognize the things like the power dynamics that are at play in the systems and structures that you're talking about when you actually look at history, like the university system or any of the institutions and, and systems and, uh, you know, whatever, how do, we, how do we look at those in terms of their, their foundings, uh, how they were founded, what they got rid of, by the way, also, right? The intuitive wisdom and the indigenous wisdom that they said was not acceptable, that you know, we're just learning about all of these children that were just you know, buried in residential schools in uh, you know, Canada and, and, and whatnot, um, and the genocide that, you know, that has taken place in order to indoctrinate Um, you know children away from their intuitive indigenous ways which really is what what brings us back to the healing and part and and that's what you're talking about in this book so so maybe we should walk it back and start to talk about the very basic thing of and you started this last year when we were talking in the other rerouted podcast who are the people that became the colonizers? What does that mean? And and I mean it from a clinical perspective. The trauma that um to use the term the white man carries and it's origins from that that was kind of brought forward that resulted in this power dynamic uh that you know of oppression and subjugation and and sort of hoarding for lack of a better word.
1: Well, it's <clears throat> If you look at sort of the, the colonization in the United States, um, part of what happened was the, the the majority of the white males that came over here were at the bottom of their power differential in in Europe. They were the second sons who didn't own property over there, who would not inherit, um, you know, any any wealth from the their parents and again if you look sort of at the at the heritage of that that goes back to the middle ages where the people who lived on your land if you were if you owned this land you owned the people Um, and just the the carry forward of of all of this stuff resulted in a lot of marginalized um, individuals that were at the middle and then at the bottom of a power differential and, and then the people who were um, disenfranchised, disempowered uh, frequently would find people that they were more dominant than that they would just turn around and dump on. And, you know, everybody hears the term, you know, S flows downhill. That's basically what happens is that that the oppression flows down and it's an unfortunate characteristic of the human Species that we tend to cr- cluster and create an us and them, and so it is always in the consolidation of power for yourself. It's always in your interest to have an, an external marginalized people to uh, basically coalesce your power. People will, you know, it's been you know through time immemorial. That's the that's the model. Of gaining power is marginalizing others, hmm. and that that brings people to you. You organize them around some hateful view or belief, uh, and you feed that to whatever degree you need to um, by identifying. Oh, this person uh, raped one of our women, so let's lynch them. Or, or this person, um, you know, we can declare them a religious heretic, and then we can literally drive them out, we can seize their land, and we be, can become wealthy. I mean, this is what happened with the, the Pope and King and King Philip in France decided to make the very, very wealthy Templars heretics mm. so they could kill them and seize all of their wealth. Right. This has happened all through history. If you know history, you know the, this dynamic of um, creating the other. And it's very easy to create the other for very concrete people if the other has a different skin color. It's a lot harder if the other has a different belief because you can hide your beliefs. You can't hide your skin color. So the most convenient group of people always that you can marginalize to get more power is people who don't look like you who don't talk like you who don't dress like you so there's some externally visible characteristic that you can exploit to consolidate power and it happens all the time i mean it's it's it happens it's happening you know as we speak
0: that's right Um, I so appreciate your contextualizing this historically and also you know to talk about the nervous system of people I mean we talk about um, you know Rick Hansen talks a lot about this the evolutionary negativity bias the evolutionary negativity bias um that uh you know that we sort of tend to have based on our survival kind of instincts, and then they also talk about like a glitch in humans, if you will, around that to a certain extent. I don't know if you know what I mean by that, I see you kind of smiling what do you, do you get what I'm saying yeah I do uh, so can you kind of maybe riff off of that well you know the,
1: the there's a part of our brain that is I kind of talk about it as this double-edged sword, that human beings are neurobiologically um, organized so that we are drawn to people and we want to be connected to people we want to belong. And historically, that group of people that you belong to, that you sort of built internally created memories and attributes of those people, Were people you grew up with, people who were in your clan, your tribe, Um, and then historically, when you met somebody who had attributes that were different from you, your default tendency was to activate your stress response. And that, you know, again, we 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 talk about this in the book, and you know, I've talked about this before. Is that if you envision the brain as this upside-down triangle, and the top is the cortex, which is where you do all of your Complex, uh, abstract thinking and good problem solving is all executive product. functioning, executive functioning, exactly. And this part of the brain, though, is exquisitely sensitive to stress. So, even minor stressors like getting hungry or being sleep deprived, you'll start to shut down your cortex. And I think everybody who's listening can think about a time when they were like worn out and tired and sleep deprived and then they you know they snapped at somebody and or they said something that was stupid that they wish they would not wouldn't have said earlier but this that part of the brain is very very sensitive to stress if you couple that with the fact that your brain is a very defensive organ it's 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 primary intention is i mean there's really kind of three things is that the, we sort of talk about the prime mandate is the prime directive of the, of the brain it's one to keep you alive um, the, the other one is to help you procreate and then the third one is to protect the dependents in your clan hmm. so there's these three things and they're all neurobiologically interrelated but you're exquisitely sensitive to any cues that suggest that you're under threat. Um, and historically, the major predator of human beings has always been other human beings. So when you meet people who are not like you or, or have attributes that, you're, that are unfamiliar to you, the default response is to shut down, is to activate your stress response, which will shut down part of your cortex. Mm -hmm. So instead of becoming more abstract and inclusive and thoughtful and, and reflecting on the past or anticipating the future, you become more concrete. You become more categorical. You become much more vulnerable to very simple linear explanations like those people are bad or they're subhuman or they're not good because they do A, B, and C. And if there is somebody who wants to exploit that, then there's a hateful belief that gets coupled to that default physiology and um, and this is kind of what makes human beings exquisitely vulnerable to being polarized into an us and them and this happens within organizations you know it'll be the frontline workers or so those people in administration right or those people in IT it happens in professional organizations of oh, those cbt people they don't understand the body and both are- <laughs> They don't understand CBT. You know, they don't lo- They don't believe in evidence, you know, whatever. You know, there's just weird polarization things that happen that are all kind of inaccurate when you sort of boil them down. But it can get to the point where these people will not even sit down with each other and listen to each other. And when that happens, then you start to get more fragmentation, more polarization. And mythology builds up around those people. And um, the other. And yeah, yeah, the other it can lead to generations of separation. And that, that's happened in the U.S. around race. It's happened in the U.S. around, uh, you know, it's happened all over the world around women, um, you know, so.
0: I keep going on, I'm sorry. No. I keep,
1: I keep going off on tangents, I'm sorry.
0: No, not at all. I asked you basically about, no, it's beautiful what you're sharing because I think you're contextualizing some of what's happening at a larger level in terms of the brain science behind it. You're a neuroscience and a psychiatrist and you work know, on the developing child's brain. You've studied it for decades. You know about the way in which you know this is an inside-out job and also you know you've looked at the history and you've studied all of that to be able to contextualize this isn't anything new Um, and what I had pointed to was our evolutionary negativity bias I mean if you look at I'm also a couples therapist so when you look at um, John Gottman and all of his research or the Gottman's you know his wife you know they're looking at uh, the way in which you know you do I think the ratio is what five to one or ten to one of positive to negative compliments that you're supposed to give and in my model with Terry real on relational life therapy we talk about cherishing mutual mutual cherishing and living relationally is living as the we and um you know dan siegel talks about the we the me and the we you know so we're all pointing to the same thing about how is it that i can get triggered in my brain my, my 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 cortex can go offline we flip our lid so to speak and then using the mindfulness piece which is just sort of one model of doing this there's a million ways you can do it that you pause so that you can get back into your regulation of your nervous system and that your brain can basically calm down and you can find yourself again. When you say, you know, you lost your mind. Yeah, you did.
1: (laughs) See, you know, it's interesting, Francesca, we were talking earlier about sort of the Maori way that I was writing about, but same similar elements I've seen in so many other indigenous groups. And the, the thing that's so fascinating about that, is that related to what you're talking about, is that when when any individual or group of people are are sort of cortically partially shut down, their decision-making will be much more concrete, won't be very abstract. It's not gonna, it won't be as good as it will be when people feel regulated. And so all of the decision-making and conversation around charged content always happens in community in the midst of regulating activities drumming, dancing, communal meals. Nobody's hungry. People are there connected with their people. Mm. Uh, We have ceremonial ritual stuff that's predictable. We know what to expect and we get better regulated. And then we talk about it. And and which is so different than in the, you you know, you think about
0: ritual dialogue in
1: on the news, you know, they're supposed to have two people that are supposed to be debating. You have six minutes to talk about one of the most important issues on the planet and each side, and they really, honestly, if they begin to have meaningful dialogue, I've been involved in these where the the moderator tried to like prod us, like a like in a bullfight.
0: I know. So they don't want you to. They don't want you to have dialogue. They want. They want the the mess. Trust me, as a former news anchor, I know. I was one of those people who was doing the prodding because that was being what was directed. But I know because that's what sells. And so I think that that's the whole point about this is, you know, I'm just going to name it, is that we live because of... Okay, so we've talked about the fact that it was the subjugated, you know, to use Dr. Kenneth Hardy's terms, who's a wonderful psychologist, black psychologist, who talks about just had the Soul Work Conference, runs the Eichenberg Academy. People are encouraged to go look at that if you want to study these dynamics. But his terms are the privileged and the subjugated. So you had the privileged in Europe, that had the subjugated second sons that had no inheritance that then wanted to lord lord over those who had even less than they did, that brought those practices here to the United States and went forth in the world through the doctrine of discovery, through manifest destiny, through all of these sort of, you know, uh, you know, land grabs and, and everything, enslavement and and genocide, and then decided that they were going to be entitled and set up institutions that well now I get mine this is my this is my opportunity essentially, right. and that. Right and 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 that this is this lives in the nervous system, of our inheritance as a country, but as our inheritance as, as individuals, and that it then gets borne out in the institutional policies that you're talking about when it comes to right. universities and academics right. and whatnot. So where do we begin in terms oh. of naming this? Sorry.
1: No 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 no. I I, I jumped on you didn't really do it. No, I, I, it's. The thing that's so important to know here is exactly, it's, I'm just going to rephrase what you just said. If you are in, a, if you're a child growing up in a system like that with parents and neighbors and schools that have the same, those same beliefs, and that's all sort of uh, uh, surrounds you, you literally grow up, like you said, with a neurobiological set of systems and biases that fit perfectly back into that and perpetuate that structure and that system. So you grow up it, 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 believing that you have certain, certain things are your right. And, and a lot of the rights you have as an American citizen is the right to go out into the woods with a gun and kill an animal if you want to. And it's, we've been hunting for years. It's, it's part of my cultural heritage, whatever. And that's so different than if you grow up. The predominant ethic, if you're a Cree, young Cree boy growing up in Northern Canada, is not that you have a right to take from the land. You have an obligation to care for the land. That's right. You have an oblig. You know, it's not like it's your right. Like it belongs to you. It's like, I am a caregiver, you know, I need to protect the land. I need to only take what, um, you know, what I need. And it's, it's a whole different sort of worldview. And I think, Francesca, the part of what's going to have to happen is that there are a lot of really smart, bright, caring people in our country, but I think that they, we've got blind spots. Yeah. And I do think that the first step in this sort of inside-out transformation is being able to clearly articulate some of these things in a way that doesn't feel so defensive, mm. it doesn't elicit a defensive response, and honestly, that's kind of what we were trying to do in this book. I mean, we 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 know that we touched on a lot of things that were highly. I mean, I some of the responses on on Amazon, you can tell that I touched a few. You know, touched a nerve. Yeah. Um, but we were trying to present these, a lot of complicated concepts in ways that were not going to be so escalating. We're not going to be make people get all defensive and help them learn a little bit about a few of these things that we think are like little baby steps in the right direction. I think that, that awareness is, is part of the, the primary process that will lead to change because we can't impose it i mean even if the most enlightened no. person came along and said here's a new enlightened system and tried to impose that on no everyone, no
0: that that's or... a that's beliefs and that's indoctrination and then you have to either then you're in or you're out and right. you're back to square one and and right. i think you know part of my own personal transformation was you know i think uh i had interviewed uh, dr vincent Felitti, one of the authors of the uh adverse childhood experiences uh study uh kaiser permanente and they've since obviously done another study called urban aces in philadelphia if you look that up for anybody who's interested in things that weren't you know the population is more diverse in in that second study um to talk about the what happened to you as a reason for some of the ways in which uh your adaptations for survival may behaviorally look like uh, behavior that is, uh, you know, not welcome in in a schoolroom or in a classroom or whatnot. Mind you, forgetting that the schoolroom or the classroom isn't actually set up particularly for learning, but rather for indoctrination and subjugation. But that's another part of the story that you know all too well. Um, but that this what happened to you piece is sort of part of my journey around understanding. Okay, my A score when I fi- figured that out was like a four, I think, which is kind of high. Um, not as high as they can be, but certainly, like, kind of helped me understand that, like, okay, so there's some stuff going on here that, like, happened to me that was, like, preceding me. And then I started learning a little bit about the way in which um, attachment theory and the way in which the resonance between uh, the caregiver, which often is the mother, not only, but often – which is why I think Freudian psychoanalysis is, you know, challenged because it's not always just the mother. It's if you could insert caregiver, I think maybe more of it might make a little more sense. But anyway, um, that beam gleam that you get when you're getting, you know, in attuning and resonating with your mom or your, you know, early caregiver that you're feeling safe, seen and soothed, you're getting your needs met, you're co-regulating as you would in the womb, but you're just outside of the body, but you're right close to the body, all those things. Yeah, my mom didn't get a chance to do that because I told you she's a doctor, she's, you know, working, she only had a few weeks at home and then she was off Um, and so it's interesting that like my feeling toward her isn't as goopy as it is toward my grandmother you know Um, as as great as my mom is um, or my grandfather for that matter and i look at the other things like you know my father and his sort of you know the way in which he was narcissistic or sociopathic explosive violent all those kinds of things and his inheritance about racial trauma and his attachment stuff cuz my grandmother had to leave the dominican republic and haiti and had to take only half her kids to the united states uh, well they were, first they split up in, and and she, didn't, she wasn't with any of her kids. And so that rupture there and the misogyny that gets seated there that was preceded by my grandfather's philandering. And so this intergenerational piece around, you know, sort of all of what I'm carrying sort of as a person and then the somatic work that kind of pointed me in a different direction because the, the somatic work was, oh, what happened to me? How did I affect, how did my nervous system handle this? How does it handle? What did it learn about bodies and about relationships and about safety and about relationality at a very young age? Because you talk a lot about the first two months and the first two years and childhood. And what I learned then, no matter what happens since, and this is a huge point in the book that you make, is that what happens in the first two months, whether if it's positive and attuned and what's needed, will change your life for the better no matter what happens to you afterwards. And if you don't get that, then things can go sideways no matter how good it is when you're 10 years old for you so can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe contextualizing how we just don't know how to do that first two months like in the way that is going to help heal us
1: (laughs) right right so one of the things that you know i've been studying for about 40 years now is the development of a set of systems, neurotransmitter networks that are really, that originate low in the brain and then go up and innervate all the higher parts of the brain and and actually control and regulate all of the autonomic nervous system, neuroimmune, neuroendocrine system. And so many people have heard of the norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, and so collectively, these um, neurotransmitter networks, which originate low in the brain Early in life, play a major role not just in sending sort of neuro, neuron neuron to neuron communication, but the pattern of activation that occurs early in life sends signals to undifferentiated parts of the brain, telling them how to how to organize how to, how to you know what to turn on and what to turn off. So, early both in utero and in the, particularly the first couple of months of life. These neurotransmitter networks are what we call morphogens, which means that they're communicating, but what they're communicating are what to do, how to develop signals as opposed to I'm talking to you signals. You know, I'm sending you a message signals. It's like I'm sending you a message not that to tell you that you're going to become an acetylcholine neuron and that is involved in attachment or you're gonna become a glutamate neuron that's involved in some other specific thing. So if those networks early in life are activated in really chaotic ways, as opposed to sort of a, a pattern that sort of has this rhythm to it, where there's moderate activation and then quieting, moderate activation and then quieting. And that that's what happens when the baby gets hungry and they activate their stress response a little bit, and then they cry. But because there's a caregiver present, attentive and attuned, they get regulated and they go back down to this baseline. And so if you have caregivers who are present, attentive, attuned and responsive, like that would happen if you were in a hunter-gatherer clan where there's an auntie, a mom, an older sibling, a cousin, you know, there's for every little baby, there are four or five adults who are capable of meeting your fundamental needs when you get a little bit dysregulated. And, and what that results in is this smooth regulated pattern of activation of these systems that promotes healthy development of the rest of the brain. But more than anything, it really builds resilience in the stress response systems. So that couple of months of attentive attuned, responsive caregiving is is re- basically a resilience inoculation.
0: right?
1: It's like getting an immunization for resilience. Now, here's what we do in our society. Rather than having four or five people around to distribute these responsive caregiving uh, interventions, we've got one isolated caregiver who may have other young kids who's living o- she's living away from her own extended family and she's not well connected yet to neighbors. And right. so, and we, we've got a world where it's like, well, you have your own apartment. I don't want to get in your, you know, in your stuff. I don't want you know, you, you know, it's your thing. That's dude. right. So here's this young person who is supposed to be taking care of the needs of all these kids on her own. And that's never, ever supposed to happen. Right. And now at least one third of the households in the U.S., that's the way parenting is, and, right. you know, you're on your own. Right, right, And it's exhausting. And I don't care if you're Mother Teresa and you have the stamina of, you know, like a great athlete, it wears you down. And, and there's just no way that you can be everything for every kid in every moment. And so it, these kids get cared for, but the, the pattern of activation and regulation is different and there'll be longer periods of crying a lot and they'll be harder to soothe and it's more herky-jerky and that leads to a a more vulnerable child.
0: Right, more vulnerable in many ways, um, behaviorally sort of physically also, like physically in terms of illness and in terms of predisposition to social determinants of health, so to speak. Right, and and Francesca,
1: the point you made about the body you know the, the the whole feedback from the inner world where the infant is trying to make sense out of her own body it's it's like if it's confusing if wow if it starts to be rhythmic like every time i feel this sensation this is that i later on understand is hunger then somebody comes and warms me and holds me and rocks me and then meets my fundamental needs or does somebody come and basically prop me up in a baby chair and sticks a bottle in my mouth so that sensation goes away, but I don't feel anything on my body?
0: That's right. That's,
1: that's a whole different experience than being completely embraced in the warmth of skin-to-skin contact from the mom. Right. And so the more we compromise the life of these young parents, the more we don't support them the less they're gonna be able to create these sort of sensory embodied experiences, these somatosensory baths that literally build in this total body experience of, of health. That's right. Skin contact is, you know, very, very well. It causes just huge releases of uh, wonderful hormones like BDNF, you know, brain derived neurotrophic factor that is good for the brain, but it's also good for all the rest of the body. and. You know, so you're meeting the fundamental, you know, this fundamental calorie need for the baby, but there's a somatic need that is going to become ultimately an emotional need yes. that's not being met.
0: That's right. A relational, it becomes a relational need. You're not just, you're not. It's the difference between doing a task, feeding the child, and being with the child in a way that also includes feeding. You know, I, and and I think that that's sort of your whole point is, you know that we're healed in relationship and love is healing you gotta go at 11 no no no, there, no, no, no okay okay sure um, no no you're good okay all right as long as we're you, you give me a signal um, you know uh, that that this idea of um and I think it's so unfair because we've been fed the myth through capitalism and hoarding um, or entitlement or subjugation or whatever you want to call it of the rugged individualism and the nuclear family. And we've been, you know, it's been used as a bedrock, um, you know, in the sociopolitical context of, of sort of inviting in more consumerism and the media is part of that in terms of all the things that you don't have that you can now buy which isn't actually what helps us get more regulated and be more balanced and it may help alleviate certain things just like the medical model in many ways we need people who can be good surgeons and we need people who can uh, you know who can build an airplane safely but but that kind of engineering that you know sort of cortex you know, cortex uh, you know, task oriented um, activity that you were talking about earlier, that is good for certain contexts. But what we're talking about here, this inoculation piece, this relational, um, you know, resilience uh, inoculation is is purely about um, just being not, I mean, the doing is is coming in a way in part with or after the being with you know and we and we put everything on the doing and i think that's such a shift in people's thinking uh, because we are time starved in this society but that grind is what is we're we're almost like kneeling at the altar of the grind in this country and we're and we're given rewards for it um social capital people say oh you work so hard you know
1: honestly if you think about the system, and, and I, I'm not saying an individual, but the system, like all biological systems that, that develop, they develop all kinds of mechanisms to maintain themselves. Yeah. If people actually had moments where they were fully reflective, they wouldn't live the way they live. See, and, and, and which means that all the whole system would unravel. That's right. Capitalism would unravel. Materialism would unravel. Um, and so so oddly enough, there are all kinds of things like that, you know, consuming time, overworking, keeping people sleep deprived. It keeps them like this. And then when people go on vacation and they take a couple of weeks off and they're in the woods and they walk, and they're like, why do we live this way? Do I need a house this big? Why don't we do, you know, I, I want to live a different way. And right. then vacation's over and they go back to work. Right. But, you know, we, we get, we, people get caught in traps. And the trap is in the, when you're in the midst of this consumeristic mindset, you want a bigger house, and so you get a bigger mortgage, which means you have to have, you can't quit your job.
0: Right.
1: You know, people don't learn to save. You can't. I mean, you can't move if if you you know. It's it, the amount of. You know, if, these are all interactive, dynamic traps that we get caught in in the in this modern world. And I think honestly. Until we have a certain critical mass of people who, for you know, who learn the skills you have, Francesca, <laughs> well, no, seriously, learning. Mean, but think about how hard it is, right? Yeah, you've been intentionally trying to be more mindful, to sort of think about how do I get out of the rat race that I was in into a more meaningful set of activities. It takes time. Yeah, it takes support. It takes a community, and and there's a lot of people that are like you know living in. I don't know, Dickinson, North Dakota, and they don't have a big community of people who are going to help them do that. Right. And so they just think about it and then they go watch TV. Right,
0: right, right. You know, yeah. I want
1: to get to watch the, my next Netflix series.
0: Right, right. And I... And I- I so appreciate what you're saying because it does take all those things. And I think that's why we, you know, the NAP ministry is a great account to follow on Instagram. And, um, you know, the the she's basically saying, you know, we need to have our time back, rest, especially for those of you who are people of color, um, those of us, you know, who are people of color, um, take your time back and rest and reflect and enjoy. And, and when we talk about another, you know, really visionary thinker and poet, Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote a book called The Body is Not an Apology wonderful wonderful teacher um is also talking a lot about how when we talk about abolishing the police or you know those kinds of things reimagining new systems we're talking about that place of creativity and that place of you know um, possibility and that place of um of not being stuck in that you know narrow uh band of of sort of the, the the hamster wheel and that you can't do that unless you feel safe and i think that a lot of times people um, feel safe when they get to the vacation, and they get to a place that that's, you know, landed, but when they feel as though they might be abandoned, that their tribe is going to leave them, if they go against the grain, and they don't want to live in this way anymore. Um, I think that that just kind of pulls them back in. And Absolutely. so it kind of perpetuates that because again, it's relational, it's the magnet of relationality.
1: Exactly. Um, and your tribe, you know, <clears throat> for many people who work, the people who comprise their clan for a big part of the day are the people they work with. Right. And, and then they have some time at home. And, I mean, everybody, I, I think the, the issue of time and, and the lack of reflective moments is really um, uh, probably one of the most important things to address
0: it's so interesting because as you're saying that and you mentioned me that i've been doing work i remember my first work on myself if you will for whatever you want to call it self-reflection you know took time to do a retreat because i was afforded financially the opportunity to go and i had the time to go and you know all those things and the people at the retreat center were kind and took care of me but i remember you know i until i sort of had my aha moment as oprah would say um which is when i i don't know if i told you i was put in jail about five or six years ago because i didn't use my directional and i didn't take a breathalyzer so it's an automatic overnight oh. and i was in jail for 12 hours or 14 hours or 16 hours or whatever it was with a bunch of other women who had not who, who had been there before you know and i was i had not been there before and um i woke up the next day and i never drank again and i sort of started to because i had had a couple of drinks um, and i had always that had been sort of my self-medication piece around you know uh trying to figure out how to quell the pain but i was never ever able to sit with myself because people say meditate meditate when i was drinking like before this aha moment this jail experience I had never been able to sit with myself, but I knew the question was why do I not feel worthy? Why do I not feel like I deserve the good things that people tell me about myself? I had graduated from Harvard, I was a television news anchor, I was outwardly successful, and yet my ex dumped me two days before the wedding. And yet I couldn't hold down a relationship. And yet I couldn't figure out, you know, this drinking thing or, you know, regulating my weight and you know, you know, all these things that are sort of dysregulated manifestations behaviorally. And, and that thing about being in jail, everything kind of just stopped. And I was like, whatever it is, I can't do this anymore, right? I need to be able to do something differently with my life. And I couldn't sit. I tried to meditate before. I couldn't mm-hmm. sit. And in this retreat, I just cried and I cried and I cried. And I just remember I was sitting, but I was sitting in community. I was mm-hmm. sitting at a retreat. I wasn't sitting by myself. And after those experiences, I started to be able to sit by myself. And then I started to be able to notice that I could be with my thoughts and not be my thoughts. And then I started to notice that my awareness and my intentionality around where I was directing my attention had as much to do with what it was that I was manifesting or what was manifesting around me. And so these things kind of clicked into place very organically and, and I was just as afraid of being by myself. And sitting with myself and my thoughts as anyone as any of my clients are today and i will say that being able to be with it and knowing that they're not going to eat you even though it feels like you're going to die because that's the way i felt before is a huge piece to this portal i think of what you're talking about is giving yourself the space to be contemplative but you can't get there if you're stuck in shame and the shame is a false narrative about who you really are
1: right and, and you're continually getting messages about that. I mean, you're not the right size. You're not the right skin color. You're not smart enough. There's always somebody better than you. To, whatever. <clears throat> whatever your sense of self is built around, whether it's sport or school or good looks or whatever, you're just not enough.
0: No. You're always
1: going to get that message. And, um, you know, I think, <clears throat> you know, that's, the, I think part of what, We this is where where the excuse me,
0: yeah, have a drink.
1: Okay. sorry. So um, one of the things that I think is so important in just going back to what I said about the public education, for example, public education should teach children how to reflect. And, and one of the easiest ways to do that, and I do this with a lot of the people I work with and and with myself is that human beings aren't, you know, and I don't mean any disrespect to people who like to sit and think, but human beings aren't meant to sit, sit for very long periods of time. Human beings are meant to move.
0: Right.
1: So I think that if you learn how to be reflective while you walk or reflective while you do some other motor activity, which a lot of people do. You know, many many cultures use dancing, for example, as their primary mode to get to sort of a certain trance-like state for certain cognitive things. Uh, you know, lots of people have discovered that. I can't remember who said it. I don't think it was maybe it was Einstein or some somebody really smart said that any idea that you that you didn't get any idea you got was while sitting isn't worth a damn.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. You gotta All be in movement
1: and- while you're walking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? So I do think that it's if for those who are listening, who are wanting to, you know, and, and like anybody. I mean, I think a lot of people, people probably have had the experience that you had. We're just sitting, and you know, expecting your brain to kind of go to the right place and do the right thinking, and it's hard. But if you walk. Mm -hmm. walk particularly in a beautiful place nature will take you where you need to go yes and trust the natural world move in the natural world and you'll find that you can get to certain reflective places that will be good for you right and i think that that's something that we need to do more in school we need to teach our children more about these things because i i think that if you think about the most valuable resource of Our, you know, community are are the people and the unique part of each person, the creative part of each person is in their cortex. And if we don't ever let them get to their cortex by feeling safe and regulated, we're sort of have this incredible, untapped, unmined reservoir of creativity and productivity and kindness and goodness that we're not reaching. Right. So we need to think about what are, how do we make our systems and our families and our communities safer, more regulating, more respectful, more Im- imbued with sort of these attributes that we, we know can help uh, unlock the cortex.
0: And don't you think that starts from, at least for me, I think if you can do that for yourself, if you have a capacity to be safe with yourself and feel safe with yourself, if you have a capacity to be kind, to your own self, if you have a capacity to recognize the fact that, yeah, you know, I don't look like Gwyneth Paltrow and I never will, and that's okay. Or I don't look like, you know, or I don't, I mean, I'm just, you know, throwing shit out there, you know. Um, but I, like, and I, 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 you know, whatever it is, and like, or that, like, yeah, I did hurt somebody's feelings. I did make a mistake. I did get arrested. You know what I mean? Like, I did, I did get fired from this job. I, I, you know, these things did happen. Um, that but I but I'm okay like there's still inherent self-worth and from that place I can be in relationship with being present and acting with discernment and wisdom and kindness and compassion in the moment around my cultures and communities that are that I'm a part of but I feel like it's really hard if I'm inside fighting with myself all the time Saying, I'm not worthy. I mean, you talk about in the book about going fishing for walleye with your dad, and you had that nice, resonant kind of, you know, beingness. I mean, fishing is a perfect meditative, co regulating activity, right? right? That those things seed your capacity to be kind to yourself. You know, you have warts. You know, we all have warts, but you're like not sitting there, like, you know, flogging yourself with it. Well, I don't know. Maybe you are, but.
1: Well, it's. I, I was just going to say, don't. It's. You just never know somebody's story, right? Mm. And, I mean, the older I get, the more I realize that everybody's hard on themselves, you know. And the only people who aren't hard on themselves should be harder on themselves. You know, the narcissists. Right. You know? And um, it just. I think here's the thing that I think is really important. So much of a person's sense of worth. And this is just because of the way we're built. This is the way human beings are built. If you get reflected back at you that you're beautiful, then you start to feel beautiful. Mm. And if you get reflected back at you that you're the wrong color or or people of your color shouldn't be in this class at Harvard, then you feel like even though part of you knows I am smarter than you, it still eats at you. Yeah. So the reflective mirror of the people around you is very powerful, particularly when you're young, you know, as you get older, you get a little bit more immune to that. You sort of, I mean, it still feels it hurts.
0: Affirmation's nice or right. insults are right. not so nice, but you have a little more right. of a buffer. Exactly. So I think that that's
1: also something that we we should think a lot about is that, that there's no reason to spend time with people who see no value in you. You know, as you get older, particularly as adult. You know, you don't need to, if people treat you poorly, you know, spend more time with the people that treat you with respect. That's right. You know, and it, it makes that process easier. Now, later on, you can go back to the people who treat you poorly after you feel a little more centered right? and you can use what's in you to maybe understand why are you so hateful or why you struggle, you know, what's wrong with me and, but You know, you really, like you've said this multiple times on this, this podcast, you kind of need to start with your own self. If you don't feel safe and solid with yourself, a lot of these aspirations you have about changing other people in the world are gonna be really hard.
0: Yeah, I think it turns into that white saviorism that you know, is one of the things that yeah. I talk about in my embodied anti-racism class and that sort of like missionary philosophy of like, you know, and you even spoke to it, like you know, you're not asking the community and going into the community with humility around engagement um, you know, of sharing resources, if you will, or offering potentially sharing resources, but with some idea that I know better. And that's just not you know, gonna work. You know, um, and and you just said something else too about the idea of um, starting. You know, kind of from the the inside out. And what came to me was Dr. Joy DeGruy post-traumatic slave syndrome, um, author talks about positive racial socialization as a way of helping, especially African-American children, uh, have a greater sense of self-esteem, self-respect and self-worth, but that it was a safety mechanism to go back to our survival strategies and instincts to have a black mother, for example, tell you know the 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 little black child no you're not as smart as bobby and no you're not as whatever because to make them be smarter would make them be standing out and make them be more of a target and so these things are you know inherited traumas and to heal that you know to your point getting some of that affirmation back getting some of that kindness back and, and and having that reflection back is part of what i think can be the healing that's what she talks about um we've kind of gone all over the place. I mean, I, I I really could talk to you for days, but um I think the bottom line about a lot of what you offer in this book with um with Oprah is that uh you know, moderate, controllable, predictable uh interactions and you've talked about this early on in a child's life are part of what keeps them regulated. Um, and, and what keeps them feeling safe so that when they grow up and they show up in the world, they can act from a place of, um, of center, of groundedness and wisdom. And that the more that we can do that for the little ones that we have and the more social structures that we can put in place socially to help create more of a tribe and not just have single moms have to deal with five kids and things like that, that maybe we can start to break some of these, these chains. Well,
1: one of the things that, that, that goes with that, Francesca, is, is I, I'm actually quite a big fan of discomfort. Mm. Um, I think it's okay, and I think it's important to not, that, that people learn not to be afraid of being uncomfortable <clears throat> or being depressed. You know, or, you know, there are moments in grief, for example, when you just feel just horrible. And, but if you can keep a recognition that this is a passing phenomenon, that, that I'm not always gonna feel this way. Yeah. Those moments over time, they, they just kind of get built to your catalog of what's, what's familiar and what's known. And the more the range of your experiences includes these things, the more you're gonna be able to stay centered in your everyday life and when things come up that are unexpected or unpredictable. And it just, it'll make it easier for you to be present for others when when you're out in the real world. But I think that right now, so many people are around parenting and around, even around their own lives as they get older, particularly as they get older and they don't ha- <clears throat> and when we're not being forced to do things that are new we choose to only do things that are comfortable. Yeah. We choose to only spend time with people that look like us. We choose only to eat food that we know what's going to taste like. So these little moments of exploration, of of daring, of trying to go hike someplace where you've never been before, um, you know, all of these little things where you stretch yourself a little bit. The growing edge. They're yeah. yeah. They're important for your brain. They're important for your your heart and your soul. And I think we need to. From the moment children are young, we need to help them be okay with a little bit of discomfort. You know, you go on a hike and you get, <clears throat> you're gonna get rain done. It's okay, you don't run back to the trailhead. You just learn how to hike in the rain. And, and you know, it, it can lead to different experiences. I told you I saw the a, a two, two, thing, two long hikes I've been on this last week where I saw a bear. Right. One was and I was on a national park trail I was about I don't know if you've ever been in a national park they're they're just packed right now. So in the at the trailhead there must have been 500 people wow. And half a mile in there's a hundred people. One mile in, there's I you know I saw maybe four or five people, six people. started to rain like crazy and everybody left the trail and I kept hiking and it got rained on for like four or five miles and at the, at five miles in, Uh, mother bear and her cubs just come down on the trail and I had this great moment which I would have never had if I had it was it was an uncomfortable hike sure but I had this moment of delight yes seeing this beautiful bear and, and her cubs
0: that's right and 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 I love I love that and I I, I know that that's part of your, you know, being in nature, it sounds like, you know, we haven't talked about uh, if you have spiritual practices, but I'm making the assumption that being in nature is one of your spiritual practices, uh, if not the practice.
1: It is, it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, from a mindfulness perspective, you know, the, the fundamental teachings are nothing is perfect, nothing is permanent, and nothing is personal. And um, I'm paraphrasing Ruth King, but these are the core mindfulness teachings. Um, and so to say that this is a passing emotion, or like, again, Dick shorts with no bad parts. That uh, the internal family systems model that all emotions are welcome. It's just that you know mindfulness teachings uh, tell us that there are certain things that we prefer, that we like, that we want to gravitate towards, that we're greedy about. Certain things that we're aversive towards, which is you know we're hateful about, and certain things that we don't give a damn about that just sort of pass us by, that don't really re- you know register on our radar because they don't impact us or our perception in any particular way because we're not programmed to be sensitized to them as a threat or as a something that we need, and that, That when we're over coupling to somatic language, somatic experiencing language, that our preference with the experience and we don't have the neutrality or the equanimity and mindfulness language around what it's like to be with the experience, to kind of be the witness or the observer or the, in focusing language, accompaniment to the experience, that we end up getting so garbled and caught up in our preference for or against with the idea that we dislike it. And then with the belief, which is the hardened thought around it potentially being permanent, and then we just run, as opposed to, or as you say, we freeze, we fly, but you know, really we want to flock, you know, which is one of the things you talk about in our book is, is to connect. And I think that that's so important because you're saying in your language, and I'm trying to introduce different language from other models and things that I've learned, that it all talking about the same thing is the more that we recognize we're a part of the river of experience, the more that we recognize we are energetically always in relationship to everything and that we're not static. And as such, we're open, the more receptive we are, the more curious we are, the more secure we are, the more confident we are, then we can be open to the delight of the experience of the bear. And you're not the same man you were a week ago because of it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So. It's a beautiful way of thinking of mine.
0: Well, you've given us so many beautiful gems to um, to think about with this book uh you know i want to give you an opportunity to maybe offer any last parting words i feel as though you know like i said we could talk for days but um i want to respect your time because it's been a really whirlwind uh period for you with this book what happened to you with oprah winfrey new york times bestseller i encourage folks to read it it is um uh, important
1: well um I just want to say I love talking with you, Francesca. It's always so much fun. Your big smile makes me smile. Look at this. (laughs) (laughs) Even across the airwaves. uh,
0: Well... You know, one of these days we'll you know we'll talk about poetry too, and we'll talk about you know writing and stuff like that, and and you know maybe how creatively you know like you say walking, and I also want to put a plug in for walking meditation. You don't have to sit there. A lot of a lot of practices encourage walking meditation and tai chi, and you know those kinds of things. Aikido. Like can be a form of healing also but um, what happened to you is the book Uh, Dr. Bruce Perry is the author and the guest today on the Rerooted podcast you can learn more about him by googling um, his name Dr. Bruce Perry the neurosequential model or the child trauma academy you can take some of the trainings that he offers you can find more about me at maximeclarity.com, m-a-x-i-m-e clarity clarit i will be offering another embodied anti-racism class coming up in the fall of 2021 through the copper beach institute and the um, wisdom school through embodied philosophy is offering on repeat the class that i offered in the spring of 2021 on embodied anti-racism for anyone who wants to look at um, sort of interrogating both the social components and the somatic and, you know, neurophysiological and neurobiological components of what it takes to kind of transform ourselves and potentially society from the inside out. <laughs> it's kind of I a big... Don't lose that aspiration. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who said this was a good idea to try, but I'm, I'm trying.
1: Uh, don't um, lose the aspiration. Be helpful.
0: All right. Dr. Bruce Perry. Hmm? Sorry, go ahead. Finish
1: things will change
0: things will change
1: things will change yeah
0: i like the optimism thank you so much for um being on ReRooted. all right take good care all right bye bruce bye